Hello, my name is Sarah Mukherjee and this is Sustainable Matters, the podcast all about big ideas and hope for the planet, a show where we are realistic about the challenges we face, but also optimistic about the future. We have to have a lot of energy. We have to have a lot of excitement because the work of changing systems or challenging the status quo is not easy. And if you can find a way to do it in a way that keeps you positive and keeps you hopeful, um, then yeah, you're on to a good start. This week's guest is Abadesi Ossosade, founder of Hustle Crew, an organization which helps leaders diversify their talent pipeline. Abadesi is a total breath of fresh air. She's passionate, she's funny, she's articulate, and she's incredibly wise about what is needed to find better tech solutions to all kinds of problems, including, as you'll hear, sustainability. Now, she was nominated by our first guest on Sustainable Matters, Anne-Marie Imaphidon. When we spoke earlier this week, I made Abadesi blush a bit by letting her hear Anne-Marie sing her praises. Abadesi Osasade is my chosen hero and she runs something called Hustle Crew. She inspires me because she's so measured, so researched, but so practical in the way that she talks about equity, the way that she talks about workplaces, the way that she talks about technical spaces and culture and the edits we we need to make. And there's so many resources that she puts out, there's training that she does, there's a newsletter that she has, but I, I wish more people could hear about her. I wish more folks could hear and use a lot of the, the devices and the things that she that she ends up pulling together. One example I reference in the book, so in, in my book, She's in Control, she's one of the one of the folks that, with, that I talk to. She, we talked about this notion of the belonging check. The way I describe it, I guess, is that, you know, we all know what spell check is, or we remember spell check. Some of us will remember time, a life before, or the time before spell check, when you'd write a document in peace. Uh, and then, you would turn on spell check and all the reds, angry red and green zigzags would then turn up across your page and it would be like screaming <laughs> at you that, no, how dare you spell this word that way? How dare you put this sentence together? Um, and now you can't write without, you, a spell check is automatically on. In fact, we've gone to ChatGPT now where it, you're not even writing. But it's so interesting, this notion and this idea that we make decisions several, if not hundreds of times a day. And so... Belong, having a belonging check on your decisions and on the way that you work, the way that you do business, and almost, I guess, eventually the way that you do life, where as you are approaching a meeting, as you're approaching a decision that you're making, have you thought about not just the diversity, the equality, the equity and the inclusion, but the belonging, the impact on belonging for um, historically marginalised groups? And so Abadesi is, um, is is my hero for, for that. Oh, so, Abadesi, um, you are Anne-Marie's hero and I saw you just beaming when she was talking about the work that you do. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's your initial reaction to that? It's very flattering because I'm such a huge fan of Anne-Marie. I just think she's an exceptional person in every way and what she's done not only to champion STEM and raise awareness of it to girls and young women, also what she's done for representation, just like being on Countdown as a black mathematician, excellent, genius person. Uh, is really nice. So when someone you admire says nice things about you, it's hard not to smile. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the way that she's described you, and we'll talk a little about the, the work that you're doing in a minute. I mean, you... you come across as two absolute balls of energy who I can imagine <laughs> if you get you in the same room together just sparks fly 
Absolutely. Um, and I think a lot of people who find themselves like one of the few or the only in their industry, trailblazing, trying to make change, we have to have a lot of energy. We have to have a lot of excitement because the work of changing systems or challenging the status quo is not easy. And if you can find a way to do it in a way that keeps you positive and keeps you hopeful, um, then yeah, you're on to a good start. So I think we fall into that camp of folks. <laughs> <laughs> now on sustainable matters, we talk an awful lot about the optimism, because obviously it's easy with the news every day about climate change, about sustainability to yeah. maybe find it challenging. Um, and also about challenges. So um, I'd be really interested to know a little bit more about your story and the challenges you overcame and did you really know right at the beginning this is where your your career was going to take you? What yes. was the motivating factors for you? I do often say to people that, you know, I spent kindergarten dreaming of delivering anti-racism and anti-sexism training. But of course, that's a lie. I didn't even know what these <laughs> things were. I had a very like unconventional childhood and, and unconventional education just by virtue of my dad's job as a diplomat. So, you know, I spent my early years moving around a lot. He worked for the International Monetary Fund and we lived in Tanzania. We lived in Kenya. And it was actually at a really young age that I started to understand issues around like environment and exploitation. I have a very clear memory of being in year eight and one of my teachers ranting about the IMF and the horrible things that they were doing. And I didn't even know that the IMF was anything more than an acronym for where my dad worked. <laughs> I hadn't ever really given it much thought. I knew it was part of the UN. I knew that was cool. So yeah, from a really young age, I became very aware that there were almost like two sides to the world. There was like the reality of the people on the ground living every day. And then there were the men in suits making big and important decisions who didn't often get stuck into the weeds of things. And that's because I, like I said, was living in sub-Saharan Africa. So, you know, I witnessed extreme poverty in a way that I, I hadn't when I was in the Western world. And at the same time, I could see the, the contrast of us living our diplomatic lives as expats, you know, being driven around by drivers. And I think I just became very interested and curious about unfairness and inequality and, and opportunity. So, you know, from a young age, I started to think, what makes the difference between a brown girl like me who gets to have a privileged education because her dad is a diplomat and a brown girl like my maid's daughter that comes over sometimes when she's doing housekeeping? You know, what what decided where we will be born as far as a household and, and where we will end up? Anyway, um, in my teens, I was sent to boarding school. I had a really, really privileged education at Rodine, which is an all-girls school in Brighton. And um, that was my first experience of like, the establishment, I guess, for lack of a better word. I didn't know much about the UK. All I knew is that my dad went to Oxford and he really liked it and he wanted me to go to Oxford and he thought that if I went to boarding school, I would get into Oxford. Spoiler, I did not get into Oxford. <laughs> it's okay, he didn't disown me. I got into LSE, that was fine. I did economics still, it's all good. But yeah, going into Rodine was such a culture clash. Suddenly I'm drinking tea all the time, eating biscuits all the time, things I'd never really tasted, playing field hockey, lacrosse, all these sports, but most of all, getting in touch with British culture. And I'd grown up in a house with Nigerian parents and Filipino parents and very loud, expressive families. And suddenly I was in a very stiff upper lip culture. And it took me a really, really long time to adjust and, and adapt to that. And I think all of these themes around difference, opportunity, inequality, and also communicating ultimately drove me to where I am now, which is using education to 
level and unfair playing field, which is the workplace, specifically the workplace in tech. I want to ensure that no matter what your background is, you can still succeed in an industry that's ultimately dominated by men with technical degrees. I'm really interested, though, that you've had this uh, realisation over what sounds like the course of some years, because there'll be many people with your position of privilege who start from that position of privilege to whom this never occurs all the way mm. through. Um, yeah. <laughs> and they'll, you know, they'll just float into a career in banking or diplomacy or whatever it is. Mm. And why is my experience so different to that person's experience? That's something that doesn't even go through their head. So what do you think it was about Ooh. your background, your thought yeah. processes that made that difference? I think there's two really profound moments that stand out to me. One of them, I was very young. I must have been maybe like eight or nine years old. I was living in Dar es Salaam, the capital of Tanzania. This was my first time living abroad, uh, like living in developing countries. It was very exciting. And I often would walk from my house after school to my friend Florcha's house. Florcha um, meaning flowers or floral in Dutch. So anyway, here's me and my very blonde Dutch looking friend. And we're crossing the street and this really young boy comes up to us and, and he goes to touch Flora's face and he says, Mzungu, Mzungu, like white person, white person. In a friendly way, he's very curious. He's never been that close to a white person. So anyway, she's used to this. <laughs> she lets him touch her face, touch her hand. We just start chatting with him. What's your name? How old are you? And when we ask him, how old are you? He doesn't know. He says, I don't know. And we say, well, what, when's your birthday? And he's like, what birthday? And we're like, when, when do you celebrate your birthday? And he said, I don't celebrate my birthday. Like, and and here, here is us thinking, oh, my God, we're eight years old. The biggest thing in our life is our birthday, <laughs> birthday our party, what cake, what entertainment. And here's a boy. He seemed to be our age who didn't even celebrate his. And I feel that that's always stuck with me because it wasn't until that moment that I realized having a birthday is a privilege and having a birthday party is a privilege. And that really, really stuck with me. And then I think, um, you know, I didn't start this company until I was 29 years old. I wanted to do something about this, but I think I lacked the courage. I lacked the, the conviction. And ultimately I was afraid. I was afraid to fail. But when I was 25, my older sister died tragically in an accident six weeks before her 34th birthday. And it tore our family apart. Thank you. And she was a real influence on on me and, and my upbringing. And she was a really, really big role model to me. And I think after she passed away, I really processed all my grief and then sort of realized what are you waiting for because you can't you can't wait there's no guarantee you'll have the time so these two moments really stand out as what sort of like set me off on this course and gave me that conviction and courage to just go for it. Now you've written very powerfully about sexism and racism in the workplace and I think you know if you're a woman or if you're a woman of color you know a lot Mm. of what you've talked about will be all too depressingly familiar and I have, I've got many friends of various heritage who, for yeah. whom non-white heritage, who said Black Lives Matter, and I tended to agree, was a real turning point because we yeah. of our age always assumed that for people of your age it was going to get better because all the rubbish we put up with in the 90s, it would get better. And it was really apparent that it hadn't. Yes. Um, and so you know, why, why do you think that is? Because you know, we'd had 30, 40 years of people trying to be, have equality, trying to bring in things. What, what wasn't happening, which now perhaps you could say is beginning to change because of inspirational people like you? 
I mean, I have very vivid memories of like philosophy lessons during A-level, reading things like Plato, where he would ask, what does a fair society look like? And and what do you think justice is? You know, what does justice look like if someone has wronged society? Um, you know, what is good? Are things ever good? Are they inherently good? Are they good because God says they're good? And the reason I mention that is because those questions were asked thousands of years ago, and we're still struggling to get the answers. And I think that's because we are so complex <laughs> as uh, as animals as species as whatever you want to call us we find it incredibly difficult to know ourselves and as soon as we get to know ourselves who we are is is changing and the world is always changing around us and when I read the Stoics, for example, I remind myself that I'm dealing with the same hardware. You know, I still have fundamentally the same brain, the same senses. So the first thing I have to think of is, you know, what happened then in 2020 that allowed us a sense of clarity or a sense of understanding we never had before? And I do think because all of our attention was focused on one thing, we gave ourselves permission to really dive into the subject and dive into the complexities of identity of race, and ultimately our complicity in maintaining systems that are broken, right? Whether it was the healthcare system that was failing to diagnose black patients with COVID quickly enough, whether it was the police still are stopping and searching black people more than white people or stopping and fatally shooting them in the US. There was this moment in time where we allowed ourselves the time, the luxury of time to understand these complex issues. What does it mean for a system to be racist? What does it mean for, for a system to be sexist? Is that possible? I mean, I know people can have those qualities, but, but can the workplace as a concept have those qualities? And we gave ourselves this opportunity to look at the research like gender pay gaps, leadership gaps, ethnicity pay gaps, and actually started to think, my goodness, so all these tiny, tiny actions of individuals in the workplace, whether they're managers, whether they're CEOs, add up into a general workplace that's hostile to insert underrepresented group, women, people with disabilities, single moms, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I think there was just this opportunity for our collective consciousness to be elevated. And if you look at where we are now, you can see that we have regressed <laughs> because we've allowed the distractions of capitalism and society to come back, myself included. I'm not standing on some Marxist soapbox, okay? I'm, I'm going out, <laughs> I'm doing things, I'm having fun. But yeah, I just think we have to remember that some of the most important problems to solve unfortunately are also the hardest and the most complex, whether that's environmental, whether that's social. I don't think any of these things are separate. You know, the people who are most affected by climate change are people of the global majority like me, people in Africa, people in Asia. You know, my relatives are in places that may not exist, right? Within the next few generations, my mother's from the Philippines, things like that. It's terrifying. It's scary. I guess we just have to think now, do we have to wait for a force measure moment to happen for us to actually give our attention to these topics and think about how we can change them? Or are we willing to accept that it's a worthy enough cause to invite discomfort into our lives and, and continually work on it? And that's a beautiful segue. Thank you so much into the <laughs> conversation about sustainability, because sustainability and environment are not diverse by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. In the UK, they're the second least diverse professions in the UK, second only to farming. And we have lots of conversations and look at tech and say, oh, look at tech, it's so diverse. There's so many young people, so many people of colour getting yeah. involved. So what is it that 
it's about saving the planet that isn't as sexy as being in tech. <laughs> and I'm really interested in your, your thoughts on that, because as you said, yeah. the, the global majority is likely to be affected first. That will already is being affected first and worst by climate change. I feel the question in many ways is is already leading, right? So yeah, it, I enough. used to be, I, I, I was often asked, for example, why don't women want to be software engineers? Why don't women want to work in, in, in tech? Why don't women want to get into research and development and product? And I was always baffled by that question because I could literally name 10 women in that moment who were incredible engineers, incredible designers, incredible, you know, you name it, people. And what I didn't necessarily get asked was, why don't women enjoy working in this space? Why don't women have the opportunities to be elevated in this space? Why aren't women featured in the media when they work in this space? I would hazard a guess that the parallels, you know, within tech and and what's holding us back, you know, from being represented more greatly are probably really similar to, you know, what's happening in in sustainability, you know, the first people that fought for sustainability were indigenous people that stopped colonizers from getting onto their land and trespassing onto their land. And, you know, this is hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. There are people in the Amazon who've been doing this for generations that are finally getting onto social media now. If you look at the roots of it, which are inextricably linked to capitalism, globalization and colonization, the originators of activism were always the people that were just indigenous to that place. Like, hey, let us protect it the way our ancestors always have. I think in this iteration of activism that we see now in like very late stage capitalism, social media, et cetera, et cetera, like anything, it's it's about power and who has the power to set the agenda of the conversation, who has the power to be on the cover of the Times, be on BBC Radio 4 talking about it. And power will always be drawn to people in the dominant groups, people who face the least resistance to access opportunity. So I think that is what's happening. And I actually think there are a lot of really incredible brown, black, indigenous people in this space, but they're probably just not garnering as much mainstream attention as their white counterparts. That's a really interesting question about the the people who have the power have the opportunity to frame the conversation. Um, obviously, the work you do with Hustle Crew, it's about democratising that power and, and, and yes. pushing it out to other people. So do you think that's that's the fundamental part of what you're doing? Is that the really important bit? I think it is. I think, you know, one of the things that I always challenge my clients, whether they are leading, I don't know, Fortune 500 company or a very small startup, is to be vulnerable in front of their team and like recognize the fact that they don't have all the answers. A lot of people genuinely want to create an inclusive workplace, genuinely want to build a team where everyone can thrive, whether you're disabled, whether you speak a different language as your first language. But I think what they struggle to admit is that they don't know how. And that's where I say to them, the minute you say, I don't know how, is the minute everyone will start to offer you suggestions and ideas. There are so many people who aren't in a position of power who are just waiting for permission. They are just waiting for permission to offer a solution, offer a suggestion. But unless they are explicitly given it, they won't speak up. They won't say anything because it's very, very likely. And I put myself in this category of people that in the past, when we tried to speak up and make a suggestion, it was not welcomed. And if anything, it actually ended up being something we regret because it made us look like we weren't a team player or like we were selfish because, you know, we just weren't quite understood. So yes, I think absolutely injecting that vulnerability, admitting when you don't have all the answers and 
therefore inviting in answers from the people who want to speak to you, people affected by the problem, people from those underrepresented groups. I suppose that leads on quite nicely on to the question about tech and sustainability. Yes. Because tech, from what I understand, and I hold my hands up, I know very little apart from I can barely open a computer, frankly. But, <laughs> but, um, but it's an energy-intensive sector. And yes. yet it's also uh, full of people who are solution-based, STEM experts and wanting to find solutions to, to problems. So who are the people driving mm. tech to become lower carbon, more sustainable, yes. know, less natural minerals being dug out of the ground type of sector. <laughs> this is such a fantastic question because it immediately gets my mind thinking about all of the ventures and, and initiatives and products that are out there and really changing the way we consume as individuals and changing the way that we behave as businesses. So I wanted to share two examples, one from the consumer space and one from the more B2B space. So a platform that I'm absolutely obsessed with is Thing Testing. <laughs> so Thing Testing is started by my friend Jenny. It started as an Instagram page of brands that she just loved, brands that she felt had a really great mission, um, were sustainable, were thinking about the planet and weren't just the cheapest thing available, like Amazon style, you know, like just get the cheapest thing in bulk. So what I really love about thing testing is it is a community of people that just love to consume things and love to share honest reviews. So it's also just really nice because I think it can be really difficult to find honest reviews these days and then also have that validation that, you know, what's this brand's footprint? What are they actually doing to reduce their negative impact on the planet? So that's one thing that I just wanted to shout out. And then on the business side, so everywhere that I've worked in tech, you always have this debate, where is our, you know, data being hosted? What horrible things is that center doing to the planet? All this kind of stuff. And a friend of mine actually works for a UK startup called Hita. So, you know, I know a lot of people are aware that data centers use a lot of energy, but really it's the fact that they produce so much heat. And like, what do you do with that heat, right? Is there a way to like recapture that heat um, or do something useful with it? Because it's going to get produced. We're not going to stop scrolling, are we? So yeah, this UK startup Heater is actually using waste heat from servers to provide people who need it with free hot water in their home. So they want to work with councils, for example, housing associations, and make sure that that heat from data centers can get used in a really positive way. And they hope to get more and more companies on board, help them reduce their carbon emissions, emissions by 60% and also help with fuel poverty during a cost of living crisis. So I just really admire the boldness of the mission at HITA, HITA as in heat with an A. So check them out. <laughs> Brilliant. And honestly, it's a hot old day outside and, and talking to you is like, <laughs> it's like drinking a cool glass of water. It really is. It's so refreshing and optimistic and energetic. I mean, it sounds that you're coming from a place of optimism. It's easy to get yeah. quite discouraged sometimes, you know, pick up a paper, look through social media at what's happening to the planet. Do you think that we will come up and the tech sector will be a part of this, we will begin to find some solutions to the problems that we're facing? I definitely think that I have to stay optimistic because otherwise it wouldn't really be fun to do my job. And I genuinely believe in the capacity for humanity to achieve great things. Um, I just watched Oppenheimer recently. <laughs> Um, I, did, I have to say, I did the Barbenheimer. <laughs> Both movies, 
Excellent. Um, but I didn't leave Oppenheimer feeling sad. I left Oppenheimer like reminded of like the extraordinary things that happen when we come together as a human race. And I fundamentally believe there is more that makes us the same than different. I think there are a lot of people with very selfish agendas trying to remind us of how we're different. But when we mute them and just look at each other straight in the eyes and smile, we realize actually, do you know what? We can get along. So I am quite hopeful. I definitely think that there has been a reckoning as far as like individuals recognizing the power they have to challenge the status quo and like you know every penny we spend every pound we spend cumulatively adding up does make a huge difference and it's quite profound actually even just thinking about where your pension is and making sure that your pension isn't funding horrible things things that destroy the planet like that change alone I, I think I read could like help us accelerate the the pace of change and, and all that sort of thing so yes I definitely think tech is creating an opportunity for people to access information and access support and community in a way they couldn't before. And if that helps them change their behavior in a positive direction, then that's a great thing. But of course, tech doesn't stand alone outside of us. Ultimately, it's like a utility. We use it. So the responsibility isn't on third parties, big businesses, Elon Musk's, you know, it's on you and me listening and what we decide to do tonight. Will we walk to the supermarket or will we drive? Will we fly on our next vacation or, you know, take the train? It's those not very sexy, but very important decisions that we have to optimize for the planet. Brilliant. Um, if I may, just a question about uh, education as well, because Please. obviously you're very, you know, very core to what you're, 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 you do in your value systems. Um, there'll be a lot of people, young people, and we have a lot of young people listening to the podcast who will yeah. be a little bit disappointed by what they've got, you know, as a result of their O levels, A levels, or even mm. with their degrees coming up. What advice would you give them if they are STEM interested? But yeah, you know, the 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 challenges have been, and it's been yeah, you know, so much for everybody who's had to try and get an education through COVID. You know, what mm. what would your your advice be to them if they're thinking, gosh, you know, what am I going to do next? Yeah, well, uh, the first thing I'd say is that you know, my illustrious career has been lined with rejections, failures, disappointments, and humiliation. Uh, <laughs> I don't like to dwell on it, but no one gets to any important position without numerous, numerous failures. They'd rather you know save totally. for <laughs> a story at the pub. <laughs> I think it's very difficult when you're young because your identity is shaped by education. I still have anxiety dreams about my microeconomics finals, and I'm 36 years old. Okay, so that is how much I worried about my grades. So the thing that I, I would say is, as much as it feels like that, your grades do not define you. You know, what defines you is your ambition and the courage you have to bring your ambition to life. Because a lot of us have ambition, but lack the courage to take a risk and fall on our face or say something at risk of sounding stupid, ask a question, even, you know, though we're exposing ourselves. But if you can get over you know, what other people think and focus on what you want to get out of your one sweet short life, um, then yeah, you know, just go for it. Your grades don't define you. You're defined, you're defined by your ambition and your courage. As you know, Abadesi, we're delighted, we're so lucky to come across you and talked with you because of Anne-Marie's recommendation. So if you had a recommendation for your hero, who would that be? Oh, so many people come to mind, but the first person at the top of that list is Guppy 
Bola. And she runs an amazing organization called Decolonizing Economics. And she is just really passionate about directing capital to the communities directly impacted by the problem, whether that's indigenous groups, um, anyone, and making sure that they can work with whether it's like public health officials or state officials to build solutions together. So yeah, Gapibola decolonizing economics. She's just absolutely incredible. She's also just an exceptional person. She's hilarious. She's warm. She's wonderful. Truly, truly, truly a treat. You can find out more about Abadesi, Hustle Crew, Thing Testing, Heater, and her hero, Gapibola, in the show notes. Sustainable Matters is about big ideas and technical solutions, but we also want to inspire you. So we're so pleased to have been introduced to Abadesi's work and to hear about the people working in tech doing all those incredibly exciting things. I know I felt really energised and optimistic about the mission and the future after talking to her. Now, for more information about the podcast and the work that Aima does and how we can help you get involved in sustainability or with the next step in your sustainable career, head on over to aima.net. That's I-E-M-A dot net. My name's Sarah Mukherjee. Thank you so much for listening to Sustainable Matters. On the next episode, food campaigner, entrepreneur, ex-government advisor and now author Henry Dimbleby. He talks to me about what's wrong with the food systems in the UK and how he thinks we could fix them to help the environment and our health. On the environment side and on the poverty side, thanks to Marcus Rashford who campaigned for some of the recommendations, I actually think there is progress being made, not on poverty in general, but on the way in which we create those safety nets. There's progress being made. To make sure you don't miss any of the episodes, follow Sustainable Matters wherever you find your podcasts and don't forget to rate, review and recommend it to a friend or colleague. Sustainable Matters, a podcast series full of solutions and optimism for a more sustainable world. Brought to you by AIMA, transforming the world to sustainability. <laughs>